Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And at this point in the week, uh, most of us are still digesting our Thanksgiving feasts, whether said feasts involve turkey, tofurkey, or the new meat-free sensation that's apparently sweeping the nation, veggie duckin'. Basically, uh, you take a bunch of yams, you stuff them inside a bunch of leeks, you stuff those inside a banana squash, and then you put layers of vegetarian stuffing in between somehow. I am not kidding. But anyway, whichever way you culinarily swing, this week is an excellent time to be thankful. To look back with gratitude on everything and everyone that made our lives a little bit brighter this past year. And here at Metro Connection, we have a whole roster of individuals for whom we give thanks. I'm talking about the scores of generous souls who've lent their voices to the show to share their tales with listeners across the D.C. region. So this week, we're bringing you a collection of profiles of memorable Metro Connection characters, from the school principals who quit their jobs and are literally enjoying the sweet life, to the man who gets permanent pleasure from creating works of art that are destined to disappear. First, though, in September, the Washington, D.C. community lost a much-beloved member— one who was vital in affecting the city's artistic transformation. J. Lee Mead was a patron, board member, and dedicated friend of the Washington theater and arts community for more than 25 years. She was also a retired NASA astronomer. Numerous theater spaces are named for the petite North Carolinian and her late husband, Gilbert Mead, including Arena Stage at the Mead Center for American Theater. The Mead's $35 million gift was the largest donation ever given to an American regional theater. Jaylee Mead was born in Clayton, North Carolina, and was 83 years old when she died at her home in northwest Washington. Victor Shargai is a former actor and longtime D.C. theater patron, as well as the president of the board of directors for Theater Washington. That's the umbrella organization that promotes D.C. area theater and produces the annual Helen Hayes Awards. Victor was friends with the Meads for years and years and years. And I spoke with him shortly before J. Lee Mead passed away. And Victor says, although J. Lee had become renowned for her generous behind-the-scenes support of local theater, she actually got her start in the spotlight. Years ago in the uh, early 90s or could be late 80s, I was privileged to see Jay Lee appear on stage at Mad Music and Drama at Goddard. And that's kind of how she and Gil, I think, became special friends through that because they were both members of this organization. And she did the role of Bertha, the grandmother in uh, Pippin. And the last 20 minutes of the show, she has almost a 10-minute long number. And she came on and took that theater over and took every person over. If she had chosen to become a Broadway actress, she would have been a star. Is there anything this woman hasn't excelled at? I think anything she set her mind to, she excelled at. I mean, she was an incredible leader as chair of the board of Studio Theater. She's an incredible board member of any organization she's ever been on, and I've served with her on a couple of things, and she had the same quality that Gil had. And they would sit in the meeting, they would not talk. You would think sometimes they weren't paying attention, 
And all of a sudden, a half hour, three quarters of an hour into the meeting, either one of them would come out with, well, this is what I see it as, and everything would come into perspective. And whatever Gill did, whatever Jay Lee does, they did it with a full heart. Neither believed in giving money without being involved. Can you take us back to when you met Jay Lee? What was the moment when you first encountered her, when you first found each other? It was either the end of the 80s or the beginning of the 90s, and um, they had become kind of secret theater goers as a result of MAD at Goddard. And they started coming to the studio theater. And the wonderful story, which is not myth or legend, it's true. I was on the board then there, and it was in the hole in the wall on Church Street that Woolley eventually took over. And we put this acrylic box out in the lobby, and people put in dollars or five dollars. And one day there was a check for three thousand dollars in there, and it was from Gill and Jay Lee. And Harriet Blum, who was chairman of the board at the time, Harry said, "Oh my God, we'd never seen anything that big. I have to meet this woman." So Harriet made up her mind, and she met Jay Lee, brought her to the board of studio, and that's how we met. You've become so close. I've seen both of you out at shows all around town for the for the past few years since I moved here. What is it that connected you two, do you think? Well, when Gil was sick, uh, we spent a lot of time together. We uh, It became a, a closer relationship, I suppose, then. And I spent the month before he died in the hospital with Jay Lee. Uh, because he was in a coma for a month before he died. And we just became very, very close. I mean, we both have this great love for theater. And um, I always would tease her. She would teach me how to be good, and I would teach her how to be bad (laughs) because she needs a little badness, and we still joke about that. And then uh, I lost my partner a year before Gil, and the three of us would always go out Gil, J. Lee, and I. And then after Gil died, we just took up and started doing everything together. And uh, it became a, a very special friendship. So, Victor, given all you know about J. Lee, all the times you've shared together, how do you think J. Lee Mead will be remembered? I think probably the most important effect her presence in Washington has had is as a great teacher of how to do something worthwhile to support something you really care about. Beyond the names on the lobbies, beyond the names on the theaters, her passion has really caught fire and brought so many new people into the theater. And I think that will be remembered more than anything. Her belief in the community and the love that she has for the artists, this passion that she has, uh, will live on forever, I think.
The man we'll hear about next also made a major contribution to society, in this case, to the realm of aviation. Now, most of us know that Orville and Wilbur Wright built the world's first successful airplane. But what many of us may not know is there's a lot more to the story. Emily Berman sorted through a hundred years of D.C. history to bring us the tale of one of the unsung heroes of early aviation. Yep. Al Welsh. Hi, Emily. Hi. So, Al Welsh, tell us more about Al Welsh. Al Welsh was an immigrant from Russia. He was Jewish, and his name originally was Libel Welsher. He lived in southwest D.C. and worked as a bookkeeper and a part-time gym teacher. So how did a Russian immigrant living in D.C. get hooked up with the Wright brothers? It all began when Orville Wright came to D.C. to show off their plane. They were looking for customers, and who better to sell to than the U.S. government? There were no airports at the time, because... This was the first plane, so the testing ground was a big grassy knoll at Fort Myer. It was right adjacent to Arlington Cemetery. This is Paul Glenshaw. He's an airplane history fanatic. So you would have heard the noise of the engine quite far away. And they actually handed out tickets and thousands of people would come. In fact, one day, Congress shut down and all tromped across the Potomac to come see him fly. Al Welsh was one of the faces in the crowd. And like everyone else watching... He found these Wright airplane flights amazing. They are these magnificent creatures when they actually leave the ground. They're very big, and the wings are bright white, and they move very slowly. But wait, it isn't like Al Welsh had a a background in mechanics, right? You said he was a, a gym teacher? Right, but the way Paul Glenshaw sees it. There was something about the airplane that compelled him to change everything. Change everything. That sounds dramatic. It was, actually. When the Wright plane was sold to the U.S. government and Orville headed back to the Midwest to kickstart production, Al Welsh was right behind him. He, he chased them all the way to Dayton, Ohio, where they lived, and approached them about becoming a pilot or joining them, just, just being part of what they were doing. Part of the Wright brothers' business was a school, and they needed flight instructors. But Welsh was turned away. They were looking for a certain type of guy. Elegant, daring. A lot of them had a background in automobile racing, or they were, you know, wealthy sportsman types. Al Welsh was none of those things. But Welsh stayed in Dayton and kept knocking on their door. What we know is that he persisted, and whatever it is that he said to the Wright brothers worked. I think it was a totally huge deal that as a Jew, he was admitted to the Wright Brothers Training School and became a pilot. Laura Applebaum is the executive director of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington. It's kind of unbelievable. You're living in a shtetl in Russia and then you're flying a plane with Wright Brothers. You know, it's, it's amazing. So Welsh and the other birdmen, as they were known, Learn to fly. There's no proper fuselage or a cockpit. There's just a little bench on on the wing. Oh, that's crazy. That's really different from today's airplanes, I'm assuming, then. No seatbelts or...? No, no seatbelts. And when you see these planes now, it is so hard to believe that anyone would have ever gotten on one of them. And Welsh just, he delivered. He was reliable. He was safe. You see a mastery of the airplane. And no need at all to hot dog it to put on a show. Because they trusted him, the Wrights had Welsh train their most important students, especially those first few army officers to come through their flight school. A young lieutenant named Henry Arnold, who later became more famously known by his nickname, Hap Arnold, 
who became the five-star general who led the Air Forces during World War II. Two years passed, and it was time to upgrade the planes used by the U.S. government. The Wrights trained Welsh on the new plane and then sent him over to College Park Airfield to demonstrate it for the military. He didn't know it then, but he'd soon be taking his last flight. Welsh left the ground and circled out away from the field at about a half mile. And he turned and came back towards the field, and as he did, he dove, apparently at a pretty steep angle, to gain speed so that as he made this climb, he'd have the speed that he needed. And as he pulled out of the dive, the wing tips came up and almost touched. The plane fell straight down to the ground. And in those days, they didn't wear helmets, they didn't wear parachutes. The airplane was completely demolished. Oh, wow. So that's how he died? That's how he died. His body was taken from College Park to his parents' home in Southwest, and the family actually delayed the funeral so Orville Wright and his sister Catherine could come in from Ohio. And this is pretty remarkable since the Wrights, by most accounts, really didn't have friends. But they loved Welsh, and actually, Orville was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. Nowadays, you know, we travel so much that flying can really seem, like, tedious. But when you think about the people who took those first steps toward figuring out what flight is and how to do it, it's amazing. I know. There were no pilots before the Wright brothers. It just didn't exist. You had to have a lot of guts to get on one of these planes. And I guess you had to be willing to sacrifice everything. So when it all comes down to it, Al Welsh really was a daredevil after all. Yeah. And the world's first Jewish aviator. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing his tale, Emily. You're welcome. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, rocking out with a rather memorable music maker. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so I figure, you know, a song is in the, in the ear of the listener, so I think it's music. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're giving another listen to some of our favorite profiles from the past year. And so far, we've been profiling people, like a major philanthropist in the D.C. arts world, and a man who took to the skies as one of the world's first pilots. But we're going to kick off this part of the show by moving from humans to animals, more specifically a certain large animal at Smithsonian's National Zoo, who recently revealed her love of music. Sabri Benashore has the story. So here's some music. And this is also music. It's from a pygmy celebration in eastern Congo. But what about this? That last ditty is by Shanti. She's kind of new. You might not have heard of her because... Shanti is our 36-year-old Asian elephant. That's National Zoo elephant keeper Debbie Flinkman. Shanti plays slash plays with the harmonica. She's just so interested in finding ways to make interesting noises. If a lock makes noise, she'll flip the lock repetitively. She will blow across the top of toys that we have drilled holes in. 
Blinkman ended up fastening a harmonica to a wall in Shanti's enclosure, and Shanti would play it. It's not usually a long ditty, but it always ends in this really big sort of fanfare at the end, this big blowout. But is that music? And actually, what is music? Like, why do we have it? It was an evolutionary accident. Dan Levitin is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at McGill University. He doesn't subscribe to this theory, but he's helping me explain it. He says, back in 1997, this scientist, Steven Pinker at Harvard, got up before a group of musicologists and cognitive scientists at their meeting and was like, you're all wasting your time because music is... Cheesecake. Auditory cheesecake. Cheesecake is interesting. We have this great fondness for it, but... Um, we didn't evolve a taste for cheesecake. It's an evolutionary byproduct or accident. In our hunter-gatherer days, it was an adaptive strategy, if you found any, to load up on fats and sweets because they were very hard to find. So because we, for other reasons, like fats and sweets, we like cheesecake too. It doesn't mean that cheesecake serves an evolutionary purpose, goes the argument. And he said the same thing applies to music, that um, our brains evolved to want to communicate with language, and music just hopped along for the evolutionary ride. So let's take the idea of the beat. The beat. The beat. The beat. The beat. Human babies can keep a beat. Most music has a beat. But most animals have no rhythm, like gibbons. These are monkeys that do kind of sing to mark their territory. But researchers tried to train these guys to just tap their finger in time to a metronome. Four hours a day they practiced, for a year. The gibbons could not do it. And then there's this guy. That's a cockatoo named Snowball. And he's dancing, like straight up dancing, keeping time, bobbing his head, kicking his feet. No problem keeping a beat. Species that do this seem to be species that do vocal mimicry. That's Greg Bryant. He's an assistant professor at UCLA's Department of Communication Studies. Cockatoos don't dance in the wild, as far as we know, so there's no evolutionary reason why they would have evolved to keep a beat, but they can. The birds evolved vocal mimicry, and it just so happens that helps with keeping a beat and dancing. And so that might be the evolutionary origins of our ability, too, since we also can do vocal mimicry. But does that mean our music is an evolutionary accident? Really? Ellen Disanayaka is author of Art and Intimacy. She's watching a video of a mother and her baby. All over the world, adults behave with their babies uh, in ways they don't with each other. They make funny facial expressions. They move their heads and, and bodies in different sorts of ways. And they talk in a higher-pitched tone with a lot of repetition, a lot of vocal contours. It's, I think, very musical. That universally sing-songy kind of way mothers and babies interact, she says, could have been the kernel a million years ago of what we now know as music. She says it could have started as an emotional bonding system that increased the survival of infants. Babies come into the world ready to respond to the repetitions and exaggerations and the elaborations of the voice uh, that the mother gives in baby talk. And they kind of move together, too. At some point in human evolution, humans invented what they call, what we call, ritual ceremonies. As human societies became more advanced, they developed rituals and built on that fundamental parent-baby bonding. We went from baby talk 
to Beethoven. But maybe music was a different kind of adaptation. An adaptation for getting along. Here's Dan Levitin from McGill University again. We now know that when people play music together, oxytocin is released. This is the, um, the bonding hormone that's released when people have an orgasm together. And so you have to ask yourself, well, that can't be a coincidence. There had to be some evolutionary pressure there. Language doesn't produce it. Music does. So the idea is that there's no primate society that I know of that has more than 18 males in the, in the living group because the rivalries cause the groups to break apart and there's too much fighting. But human societies of thousands of members have existed for thousands of years. And the argument is that music, among other things, um, helped to defuse interpersonal tensions and to smooth over rivalries. Back at the zoo, Shanti loves to make sounds. Is it music? Elephant keeper Debbie Flinkman says it sounds like more than just playing around to her. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so I figure, you know, a song is in the, in the ear of the listener, so I think it's music. Dan Levitin thinks Shanti is just basically playing around, but... I think that music is really a, uh, falls along a continuum. There are things that are music-like. Where you put the dividing line, uh, I think, is subjective. After all, we can hardly figure out why we even have music, let alone whether Shanti does. I'm Sabri Beneshore. You can check out videos of dancing cockatoos and musical elephants and read more about the origins of music on our website, metroconnection.org. turn now from music to movies. This sound you're hearing is one that's becoming increasingly rare, actually. It's the whirring of a film at a drive-in theater. Actually, one of the last drive-in theaters in the country. It's called Benji's, and the third-generation family business in Maryland draws patrons from near and far. But Benji's is in trouble at least according to its owner. The theater's been fighting a four-year battle with a nearby convenience store whose lights, Benji says, bleed onto the theater property and distract viewers. Martin DeCaro headed out to see how the next scene in this drama will unfold. Inside the projection room, high above a rolling grass field of 250 parked cars all facing a giant movie screen... Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the big and beautiful... Sure, D. Edward Vogel puts on a show. Yeah, I gotta go quick. Like a pinball, he bounces from one mighty projector to the other, empty reels under his arm, careening around his friend, Sam. Sam is a simplex aromatic. In fact, I don't think anybody has a Sam left. Sam is a giant platter wound with an entire film ready to be fed at 24 frames per second. Yes, Sams are rare. So are people like D. Edward Vogel, whose father designed and built his screen. The monolith, a 52 by 120 foot monolith. That's the biggest screen left in the United States of America with a perfect picture and continuously operating. Don't sneak your in the 
Vogel tries to immerse moviegoers in nostalgia, from the classic hits blaring from the speakers to the aroma of tubs of buttery popcorn sold at his refreshment stand. In this atmosphere, it's easy for him to remember the first time his dad led him into the projection room at nine years old. He still has a lot of kid left in him, but he says the past four years have taken the fun out of his life's work. In 2008, I did not take a 16-acre parcel of drive-in movie theater designed and built by a famous architectural engineer, a perfect example of roadside America. I did not take that and park it next to a brightly lit farm store. That's not what happened here. And the fact that I was here first apparently doesn't mean anything at all. And that, that, wrap your mind around that. His tone might surprise you since he just won his lawsuit. Did I? A jury awarded Vogel more than $800,000 so he can build an 800-foot-long fence to block the light coming from the Royal Farms Gasoline and Convenience Store on the other side of Four Lane Eastern Boulevard. But the jury did not award him damages. In fact, he has not lost business since Royal Farms opened in 2008. The business numbers are not down. They're always up. Is the bottom line? No. You're looking at a 56-year-old physical plan. Look, look what I haven't done in the last four years because I've been spending money on legal fees. Vogel's attorney, Ray McCurdy, convinced the jury that Royal Farms lights are a nuisance to the operation of the theater. He had a lighting expert testify at trial. Royal Farms signs were anywhere from 10 to 100 times brighter than the movie attempting to be projected onto the screen. Just like in the movies, there is more than one side to every great drama. Royal Farms has already filed a motion to have the jury award dismissed, and failing that, the company will appeal. John Kemp is Royal Farms' president. Our concern here is that we, Royal Farms, complied with the county regulations, and we built the store with zero light migration, and we have bent over backwards uh, trying to basically rectify any issues that have come up. His store has not been cited a single time by Baltimore County inspectors who were summoned to check out his lights dozens of times over the past four years. Kemp's attorney is Alan Abramowitz. Our experts testified that not a single foot candle of light makes it across Eastern Avenue, let alone past the businesses, past the fence, past the tree line. D. Edward led me around his property as Madagascar 3 played on his big screen, showing me where the lights were most visible. Sure, I could see them across the street, but are they distracting? Some moviegoers say yes. Anytime you got a bright light, it distracts you. It doesn't bother me. I'm here for the movies, and that's what it's all about for me. To be quite honest, I, didn't, I never even noticed it. It's actually a stoplight over there. It's more annoying than the farm store. <laughs> John Kemp was truly stunned when he lost in court, but Vogel isn't celebrating. He says he needs to build a second screen to stay profitable, but he won't do so until the lighting issue is resolved and the expected appeal is over. What other answer is there? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I would spend my last dime trying. Absolutely. Meantime, Benji's projectors rattle away. The show goes on. I'm Martin DeCaro. And a quick update to this story. In September, a judge set aside the more than $800,000 jury award in favor of Benji's owner, D. Edward Vogel. Vogel has appealed that decision, so the sequel on this one has yet to be written. a little farther out in Maryland now and hit the beach for On the Coast. 
our regular segment in which coastal reporter Brian Russo brings us the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Now, Brian does a lot of his reporting in Ocean City, Maryland. And if you've ever hopped over there in the summer, you've probably seen these massive sculptures rising from the sand right near the boardwalk at 2nd Street. Those sculptures, often biblical in nature, are the work of a man named Randy Hoffman, who's been making sand sculptures in Ocean City for more than 30 years. Brian chatted with Hoffman about what it's like to spend so much time on art that's destined to disappear. When you start, you just have a mound of sand. So going from the mound of sand to these exquisite and intricate scenes, you know, we've, we're looking at uh, probably a 15-foot Lord's Supper scene. Um, talk about creating that. How long did it take? What's the first steps? How do you do it? These are mega sculptures now. When we come out in the spring, they're just little piles. They're like one-third the size of this Last Supper pile. And then after we make a couple of them, and we, uh, we, they get decayed or vandalized. And then, for example, this Last Supper here, we had to wreck two perfectly good sand sculptures, and we, and we lumped them two together to make this triple-sized sculpture this Last Supper. And we had about 15 kids out here digging. It took uh, about three hours to dig, and took me probably 15 hours altogether to do the sculpting, you know, the whole day. And you, you talked a little bit about the paste and, and using a little, you know, you, you showed me the knife. It's like a little plastic carry-out knife. knife. Yes. It's, it's from the mug and mallet across the boardwalk in the Plume Plaza you, you, to pick the crab meat. But it's a little plastic knife, but it, it's strongly made. I can remember some of the early years, I'd be looking for little sticks on the beach because I'd want to do, you know, intricate details on the eyes and all. And my hands were pretty good, but uh, couldn't really cut. And then this knife, I don't know, I forget when I first started but it's been my main tool in my whole life this, yeah. this little plastic knife it's so simple but it, it's light and uh, um, oh it's great to do lettering with let's walk towards the the sculptures for a minute talk about how long that takes to to kind of hone the craft to be able to have it this in, intricate i remember when i thought well maybe i'll do sand sculpture i went over to acetate uh so all alone in private so nobody could see how good or bad it would be and i did a jesus laying on the cross just flat on the ground and and it was okay but my early sand sculptures they were like the michelin tire people you know just there's just blob kind of things and so it's taken a lot of devotion to, to to keep honing the craft you know certainly weather plays into the existence of these sculptures i'm sure anytime you watch uh, you know the weather and you see a big storm coming how much does a regular rainstorm or a windstorm damage these uh, amazing pieces of art oh my you know last couple of weeks we've had a lot of rain oh and some some just some harsh storms have rolled through and uh, although now we spray it with the finished sculpture with a little bit of water down Elmer's glue and it puts a crust on it and that protects it and so they can last for a month or so. But um, if it rains lightly, the rain will go in and wash off. But if it's a heavy rain and it keeps raining hour after hour, it'll turn the uh, the Elmer's glue back into just nature, you know, and it'll dissolve and, and the, the, the sculpture will get heavy and blob down and just, just fall down. Do these ever get vandalized and, and you know... I guess talk about that, the way that the community interacts with these sculptures. Are they respected enough to not be damaged? Most people pretty much enjoy it for one reason or the other. It's kind of a combination of two. Wow, look, using natural materials on the beach, very appropriate, a beach presentation of the Bible. So that's a cool thing. So most people like it, but then 
say like early in the morning somebody's half drunk and they're not really mentally there and so they may may jump on it or, or you know in every crowd there's some some wise guy who just wants to be cute and and um do something daring and then he'll run up to it so i don't know the reasons why but it, it does get vandalized once in a while do you ever wake up in the morning and say man i gotta go do the sand sculpting again today no, actually, I, I do so few now. In the early years, before the Elmer's Clue, we do about a hundred a summer. We'd have to come out every night. I was a Sabbath abuser. But uh, now, now I do about fifteen of them or so. Uh, besides the commercial contracts I do of sand sculpture, so I kind of look forward to it because it, it's more fun than when I'm just by myself down the studio just painting. Are you looking to teach the next person that will? keep this going you know when you can't do this anymore when you choose not to do it anymore i'd like to see it go on i mean it it seemed uh it'd be a failure if it just dropped out when i drop out i'm i'm 60 right now you know i feel like i got maybe up to a decade you know they say is this your church well way it's a church but more i'm I'm an evangelist which means the bringer of the good news a guy who just comes in said i got good news you know it's like a a gossip it's like paul revere guy riding on the horse you know runs into town the british are coming and and i'm in here ocean sea says "Uh, the kingdom of god is coming it's good news and he accepts you you're but welcome. instead of holding the Bible, you're, you're holding a little plastic knife and oh, creating exactly. sand sculptures. I'm a visual communicator. I think God's equipped me with these skills to do this job in this way. Mm-hmm. And it's just as valid of a way as if I'm just, uh, if I was on a church or on television or something like yeah. that. That was sand sculptor Randy Hoffman speaking with WAMU's Brian Russo. Check out some of Hoffman's work. Head to our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, catching up with a swaggering iconoclast of the D.C. jazz scene. Anybody involved with commerciality will tell you that there's certain things that they will not do, cannot do, and I challenge all of that. That story and more coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're looking back at some of our favorite profiles from the past year. And one of the people whose profile we simply cannot get out of our heads... Look at this. ...is a guy... Here's a list of the names that they call me. ...who's been called some pretty wild names. Let's see now. Saxophoniac, bionic saxophonist, Mr. Vocalist Buzz, Drooby Drooru Rambo Sax, Saxophonic Ebaniac, Slide Saxophonist, Zorro Sax, and Chicken Alto. All among many others. Ha ha ha! I'll just call you Andrew. You just call me, yeah. <laughs> but you can also call 70-year-old Andrew White an author, transcriber, improviser, composer, producer, and ever-enterprising entrepreneur. Uh, my name is Andrew Nathaniel White III, and I'm the president and founder of Andrew's Musical Enterprises Incorporated of Washington, D.C. White's self-run, self-produced publishing company boasts more than 2,800 items in its catalog, from recordings to transcriptions to essays to novels. You can even buy White's 840-page autobiography. 
everybody loves the sugar. It is the largest autobiography in the history of music, and uh, we sell it here from Andrews Music Direct. And uh, I, you, this is public station, right? You yeah. can't, you you don't call prices and stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, at least I'm saying it. You know, they they can contact me. <laughs> like I said, ever enterprising entrepreneur. <laughs> Andrew's music celebrates its 41st birthday on September 23rd. That's the day legendary saxophonist John Coltrane would have celebrated his 86th. And given yet another name White's been called, Keeper of the Train, the matching birthdays aren't exactly a coincidence. Well, You've transcribed, was it all of Coltrane's solos, most of Coltrane's well, solos? Well, that's what the, we published, uh, 701 Coltrane solos. Here's one, yeah. Stretching all the way across the wall. Wow. Mm-hmm. Before we go any further, a quick word about where we are right now. We're next door to White's Brookland residence in a cozy house he calls his music museum. I am, like, amazed by what I'm seeing on these walls. There are, like, hundreds of framed uh, reviews, articles, photographs. Uh, you can look. go ahead and look around. I don't know. I can explain anything to you. You might I don't know. Want. Sh- show me some of your favorites, maybe. All of my favorites. <laughs> all of them, because it's all, it's all me. White obviously takes pride in his career, which started in 1960 when he began studying music theory at Howard University by day and playing sax with the JFK Quintet on U Street by night. We were at the Bohemian Cabins for, uh, well, two and a half years. And we were famous for being a groundbreakers. You know, we were doing a lot of original material. And then we had a stark contrast in our band between the trumpet player, who was a you know, good soul trumpet player, and whatever you want to call me, I consider myself a swaggering iconoclast. Yet another name we can call Andrew White. See if you can hear why in this selection from the JFK Quintet's album, New Jazz Frontiers from Washington. days with the JFK Quintet, White and his alto saxophone have swaggered all over the world. But sax isn't the only instrument White has mastered. He's played bass with The Fifth Dimension, The Weather Report, and Stevie Wonder. He even studied oboe in Paris and toured as principal oboist with the American Ballet Theater of New York. I was with Stevie Wonder and the American Ballet Theater for three years, concurrently. And I did have close calls of where I was doing back-to-back work and people would look around and didn't believe that they saw the same guy doing the same. They thought I had a twin. Which actually reminds me of yet some more names the indefatigable Andrew White has earned. The Marathon Man and Hercules and everything. He got these monikers in 1975 after a rather Herculean event. Can I ask, I'm seeing these signs for your Marathon 75. Yeah. What, what was that? That was a 12-hour concert that I played right here at the top of Foolery down on Pennsylvania Avenue from... 6 p.m. November 16th to uh, Monday morning, 6 o'clock. It's true. White and two quartets took over the old house of jazz for the night with one intermission. And today, Andrew's music offers the live recording. Here's a marathon, 75 series, right here. As a nine-record set. Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, Volume 4, Volume 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Can we play one? Like right now? Sure, sure. You ready for them? I'm ready. <laughs> All right, here we go. The quartets performed in shifts, but White? <laughs> Our Hercules Marathon Man? Yeah. It's hot. 
He played the entire 12 hours. <laughs> so, talk about swaggering iconoclasm. The guys recorded a nine-disc set of a 12-hour concert. He's done double duties with a pop-funk superstar and a classical ballet company. He started his own publishing company. He's been known to hawk his own merchandise at gigs. He's never even hired an agent or a manager. As an artist, I got something I'm doing and so on and so forth. I can't stop that simply because I have a contract with you that says that I owe you this and blah, blah, this. Here's the thing, though. If you ask Andrew White if he'd recommend that other musicians follow his lead. So would you encourage more people to do what you did and just go your own way? I've never done that. No. You know, from an artistic perspective, it might sound noble. But uh, when you index all of that with the practicality and the, the economics of it and all that stuff, no. But if you ask White what he does recommend... So what do you recommend? His answer is simple. I don't. Because I I know it's different for everybody, artistically or professionally. So you're going to sink or swim. You need to find that out for yourself. And Andrew White has had his share of sinking and swimming since those early gigs on U Street. And though these days he performs and composes far more rarely, he says he manages to stay afloat all the while remaining true to the music that has made him D.C.'s very own swaggering, iconoclastic, saxophoniac marathon man. Another name Andrew White calls himself is Technological Dinosaur, especially when it comes to the Internet. But for information on how to reach out to Andrew's music by phone or U.S. mail, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Clearly, Andrew White gets a ton of pleasure out of making and selling music. In fact, it's pretty safe to say he feels like he's living the sweet life. Well, the people we'll meet next are also living the sweet life. And I mean that more or less literally. Adele Cawthorn and Bill Carlina used to be principals with D.C. public schools. Last year, they both left their jobs. Not for another school system, mind you, but for the gourmet cupcake business Kavitha Cardoza brings us their story. Adele Cawthorn cuts up chunks of slippery, glistening white cream cheese to weigh. I use a scale because I've learned when you're producing large batches, it doesn't help to use measuring spoons. (laughs) She wakes up at four in the morning to begin a long day. At the beginning of the week, she bakes about 500 cupcakes a day. But by Friday... Yeah, I might bake seven or 800, and then on Saturday, we pretty much lose count. Cawthorn delights in dreaming up new cupcake varieties. There's a pomegranate martini cupcake, a bacon cupcake, even a fried chicken cupcake. So it's a cornmeal cupcake with a chicken nugget breast inside of it, topped with maple buttercream and drizzled with maple syrup. If you like the savory and the sweet, it's the perfect cupcake for you. Opening Cooks and Cakes Bakery has been a leap of faith for Cawthorn. She was an educator for 16 years in Baltimore, Howard, and Montgomery County school districts. But she says one year as principal of Noyes Education Campus in Northeast D.C. was enough for her. Last year, she left a $127,000 job with DCPS to start a gourmet cupcake business. 
along with another disillusioned principal, Bill Kalina. Uh, and so I did jump on at the Michelle Rhee bandwagon and was really hoping for true strong reform for the school system. Both Kalina and Cawthorn were hired by former Chancellor Michelle Rhee but left under current Chancellor Kaya Henderson. At least 17 principals are leaving DCPS this year and a majority of them were hired by the former Chancellor. Kalina has 17 years of experience in education, mostly in Montgomery County. He was head of Hearst Elementary School in Northwest DC for two years. Both he and Cawthorn stayed a far shorter time than the average five-year tenure of an urban public school principal. But both these former school administrators brighten when they recall their teachers, principals, and especially the children. I loved the kids, of course, because they always come to you as they are, no hidden agendas. Ask them what they didn't like, and they answer almost in unison. It's what they call DCPS's extreme, intense, overwhelming focus on testing. Just because you teach it on Monday at 2 and the kids don't get it doesn't mean they're not going to get it Saturday at 3 p.m. when the light bulb goes off when they're in soccer practice. But we have gotten to a point every child in that class must get it by Monday at 2 because we're going to test Tuesday morning at 9. And so you must have it. That's just, that's not natural learning. Both former principals say they received little support from DCPS's central office. If your numbers don't look right, you're going to get a phone call or a nasty email, even though you're there 12, 14 hours a day, sometimes getting advice from people who've never walked in your shoes. For me, personally, it was way too much. Kalina says one incident in particular still upsets him. The power went out at our school, and it was rainy and cold and, and completely dark, and I ended up asking the Sidwell principal if we could move our students over there. He says no one from central office ever contacted him, so he decided to send everyone home. I got my hands slapped, but if nobody from the central office, and I'm at a privately funded school who can only host me for four hours, what am I supposed to do? DCPS doesn't offer any explanations about why principals leave. In general, spokesperson Melissa Salmanowitz says DCPS takes several issues into consideration, including test scores, family and community satisfaction, school culture and enrollment figures. But she says the focus is always on what's best for students. But research from the Wallace Foundation shows what's called principal churn creates serious problems for a school. Students, teachers and parents have to get used to the new person's priorities and new relationships have to be formed. Plus, there's always the danger staffers believe they don't need to do things differently because the new principal will leave soon as well. I am about to melt some semi-sweet chocolate that is going to go in the middle of the s'mores cup. And then top it with a marshmallow topping and some graham crackers. It's delish. Kuthon says it's ironic the cupcakes she baked as gifts to cheer up her teachers have become her full-time career. She says it was hard to leave her job in education, even though she would never go back to being a principal. For his part, Kalina hasn't completely closed the door on returning. Who knows what will happen in the future? I'm only 40, but certainly DCPS will not be in my future. <laughs> Kalina says he walked away from a $95,000 job and is making hardly any money now. Still, he believes he has something even more sweet, something that makes it easier to get out of bed early in the morning, a renewed sense of purpose. 
I'm Kavita Cardoza. You can see a slideshow of Bill Kerlina and Adele Cawthorn at work in their cupcake shop on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Kavitha Cardoza, Martin DeCaro, Sabri Benashore, and Brian Russo. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, that's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter link, our Facebook link, you can read free transcripts of stories, and if you missed part of today's show, you're in luck. You can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next time when we'll explore the many ways we communicate. We'll ask whether DC has its own way of speaking and we'll explore the communication or lack thereof between the district's bicyclists and drivers. Plus, we'll meet a man whose brother communicated all sorts of lessons even after he died. When he got to the Marines, he knew what he wanted his life to be and he just went at it full force. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 885 News.